Hi, this is Michael Fitzmaurice, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how's it going? It's going awesome. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Hey, who's on the show today? Uh, it is Michael Fitzmaurice, who shot the new Top Gun Maverick movie. And to be clear, uh, Michael Fitzmaurice is the director of photography for the aerial unit. So, you know, all the airplane stuff and the flybys and all this stuff. And like, and he talks Which they about did, it. They did for real, right? Like oh, there's tons and tons. Yeah. There's not is... CGI and uh, not even models like in the original. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there is some CGI or some models and some different things, but the stuff that Michael is involved in was all the real stuff. And, you know, it was a big team and he gets into it in the interview. He talks about all the different ways that they would shoot this and include, I don't want to give it away, but it's really interesting stuff. And I'm so glad actually to finally get to this episode because Michael Fitzmaurice is one of these people who we've been talking about having on the show for years, mm. for years and years and years. And he has agreed to come on several times before, but scheduling or for whatever reason, we couldn't make it work. And the guy is just brilliant. Like, I, I, in case I don't make it clear in the interview, there are some DPs out there and they are like, they're like psychics. They, they have like, they're feeling their way through the process. They're not very technical. They surround themselves with technical people. Michael Fitzmaurice is technical and technically brilliant. So even though he might have very technical people with him, he is that technical brilliance that helps like put it together. And I know that he's built a career on being hired, people hire him because they have no idea how to do what they want to do. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know how we're going to do this. We're going to do it like this. We're going to do it like this. We're going to do it like this. And he speaks with the voice of authority to, to actually do that, which is amazing. And, you know, he's a friend. He's a client. We've done a lot of work over the years. And holy crap, Top Gun actors, like one of the lead actors from Top Gun came in and bought a GoPro during, you know, pre-production. They what? wanted to record really? themselves. Yes, while they were doing like uh, all the flight training, they wanted to make sure that like, you know, the, <laughs> if there was a, a vomiting situation that they were going to be able to like, you know, they wanted to see what they looked like. They wanted to be able to have it for posterity. It's like, no, Top Gun's one, like this movie has been one of those movies that has been in the works for decades and I understand that there were different scripts that kind of came forward and it took a lot of things to coalesce right at the right time and it it was produced before the pandemic then the pandemic happened and it got shelved because uh it didn't the pandemic also buy them some time to go reshoot do some pickups or reshoots or something to make it you know to up the stakes of some of the stuff that's ooh, what that, I read oh that that could be but I, I don't remember that and I don't remember talking about that. So that's interesting if that's the case. What I think, though, is, is fascinating about this movie is that, and this, this will kind of flow right into our, our close focus, because this weekend it made $152 million blowing out Pirates of the Caribbean's Memorial yeah. Memorial Weekend box office. And it, they did it during a pandemic. So that's like an incredible number of butts and seats that went to, th to the movie theater to see this. And worldwide, it's already 250 million. It's another 100 million worldwide this movie's made. And it's a 97% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, audience scores for this movie is off the chart. It's really, really hitting. And it's not just hitting in the nostalgia sort of like bucket. People are feeling nostalgic for a 36 year old movie. How does that, how old does that make you feel? 36 years Ancient. ago. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Friggin' ancient, uh, basically the age that I actually am. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting <laughs> because it's a 36 year old movie 
that is well-known and I would say not unbeloved, but also, you know, the original movie kind of. It's a, it's a popcorn movie. It is. But, it, you know. but, it, but like the, the original movie isn't like considered to be like a great a movie. It's no. considered to be like a big movie of its time. Like, like, you know, you can't hear uh, certain Kenny Loggins songs without thinking about <laughs> that movie. But there are scenes like the volleyball scene that kind of get made fun of. I'll just say get made fun of. <laughs> and and like when I heard that they were making a sequel to it, it was like, I don't know that I need uh, jingoistic rah-rah military Tom Cruise movie in my life. And I also must say, I have not seen the movie yet, but I have not heard one bad thing about Top Gun Maverick. I haven't heard one bad thing. Based on what I'm hearing, it sounds like just an amazing film. And I almost feel like the industry needs to take a second look at what it calls second unit because aerial unit stuff on this movie, I'm sure that they work their asses off getting the drama just right. But the reason anyone goes to see this movie is to see the aerial unit stuff. Like that's the stuff that you want to see. And Tom Cruise, like latter day Tom Cruise has worked so hard to bring a realism into his movies. He's beyond an actor at this point. He is the brand and he pushes the envelope. I mean, like, isn't he about to be making a movie in actual outer space? Like this guy is constantly pushing and pushing. And so when I've watched the footage I've seen from the new Top Gun movie, it does look shockingly realistic. The stuff that that you see, like when the planes bank and the way the vapor trails kind of curb off of the engines and stuff like that. That's stuff you wouldn't see in a model and probably not in a CGI simulation. And our eyes are so inured to CGI that we know it when we're looking at it. But when we see the real thing, it, it really puts you into that environment. You know, I'm also going to, we'll put a link in uh, in the show notes over at camnoir.com. But anyone who's uh, curious in, about finding out more about Michael Fitzmaurice, you should go to Cam Noir, click on the link to his IMDb page. And just take a look at all the incredible work that he's done for so many huge movies, working as a camera operator, working on second unit, working on all kinds of just different things. And we and we get into some of that, but I don't talk anywhere near, you know, the total breadth of his career in the interview. But it's it's absolutely worth taking a look at because, uh, yeah, he is the guy who solves so many problems, I think, for other people who are like, hey, we're not exactly sure how to do that. Let's get Michael Fitzmaurice to figure this out for us. So he, he he's that guy. Well, he's and yeah. And like, this is never to bag on the director and the DP of the movie. Oh, not at all. But I do feel like a lot of times you go to somebody like that. And then later on, whoever the director is, you go like, oh, that director is amazing. And like, they basically gave a stamp of approval to the person who knew better how to shoot the sequence. That is the thing the movie becomes known for. And I feel like you see that over and over and over again. You see it in the James Bond franchise. You see it in the Fast and the Furious movies. Like all these movies that are like heavy on the action and have like a signature action. A lot of them have a signature second unit that does something that the the first unit director is is it's not their job to do it. It's you know, it's their job to do dramatic scenes. But when you ask yourself in your heart, do you go see the Fast and the Furious movies for the dramatic scene work or do you go to watch kick-ass car chases? I, I really feel like the kick-ass car chase is what gets you in the theater. Well, it's funny you say Fast and Furious because Michael Fitzmaurice did second unit aerial DP work for Fast and the Furious. <laughs> I bet he's worked with friend of the show, uh, Tony Libertori, I'm, I'm sure who storyboards all of those movies. Uh, it would not surprise me one bit. So, hey, let's get in the close focus because due to the success of Top Gun Maverick, you have to expect that the big studios, the streaming services, they're going to be looking now for other properties for them to create a sequel, maybe 30, 40 years later for some for some of this stuff, create a new sequel 
get the band back together. Uh, they just dropped a trailer for a new Willow. That, that's that been in works for a while, though. And that's a Willow series. But I'm actually blown away by that. That, yeah. that, that too. But I think people keep bringing up other movies specifically of the 80s, specifically around the same time as Top Gun now is what are, are going to be hot properties. But uh, I got to say that I am not looking forward. Look, look I'll have the exact same feelings of a movie should have a sequel sometime soon after the movie's a hit that the movie comes out and nostalgically speaking you know decades later i think the criteria is the same is like was there really unanswered questions is there really like more story that needs to be told is there a reason a really compelling reason to go back into that again and most of the time i'm gonna say no most of the time you probably don't need that stuff if it's if it's a really well done movie there are probably some poor movies that that could use it but what's gonna happen i i have no crystal ball except for the fact that this movie made a boat ton of money and then other executives out there gonna be like look let's just do that again that should be easy we're painting by numbers right but what do you think what do you think is gonna happen I think it's a huge gamble, and I say this as someone who worked on a film that was a big hit, and no one's been able to capitalize on it since, and that's the Blair Witch Project. So, you know, the Blair Witch Project is a well-known brand. People have their opinions one way or the other about the movie, whatever, cool. The sequel flopped, and then in 2016, Adam Wingard made yet another one for Lionsgate, and it underperformed. And I asked myself, like, okay, well, there is name value. There is name recognition in this property that I was associated with. So I want to, I, every time that a sequel has come out, I've rooted for it. I, I wanted it to work. You couldn't have uh, built a better director for a Blair Witch movie in a laboratory than Adam Wingard and his uh, writer, Simon Barrett. But you kind of have to ask yourself, is the hunger out there for it? And we've seen it time and again. I mean, I think another good example is the prequel to the thing that came out in I want to say 2011 that was a prequel to 1982 John Carpenter the thing the the classic one of my all-time favorite movies and I feel like you know it's like you don't bring back Kurt Russell you don't bring back Keith David you don't bring back any of the characters because it, all these are the events that happened before those people got involved mm. uh, they made kind of a weirdly slavish prequel it is not a bad movie by the way I, I re-watched I saw it in the theater and then I re-watched it within the last year it was on I think Amazon Prime and I'm like, oh, it's got a, it's like Mary Elizabeth Winstead's in it. Joel Edgerton, I believe, is in it. It's a really good film. It's just impossible to stand up next to the John Carpenter movie. Like, it's not just making a movie that's better than the John Carpenter movie. It's making a movie that's better than how people remember the John Carpenter movie. And I feel like that's where something like Top Gun has all kinds of room for improvement because... The politics of it, the style of it was very of its time and doesn't exactly hold up. You know, Tony Scott was an amazing filmmaker, but he tended to make really zeitgeisty films that if you look at them even 10 years down the road, they feel like such a product of their time, much more than his brother Ridley Scott. But I feel like what are the properties that we're going to go back into now? Like Top Gun to me is uniquely poised because you've got Tom Cruise who is today as much of a movie star as he was in, what, 1984, whenever the first one came out. What are the other, I mean, like, what else are we going to do, you know? Footloose. Footloose, well, and they already they already remade Footloose. Flashdance. Oh, I, I, I think Flashdance is a really interesting case because I defy anyone to tell you even what the story of Flashdance is. Like, I don't remember, I, I was a kid and my dad took me to see it in the theater. I don't remember literally anything about that movie except for the same dance number that became a cliche at the time do you know the connection between Flashdance and top gun the connection between Flashdance and top gun i don't 
Jerry Bruckheimer, Don Simpson. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, and also the composer who did like, you know, the theme song to Flashdance, the what a feeling, that that yeah. whole thing. Also the composer for like Danger Zone. So, you know, that's... Uh, Interesting. So, yes, it was it was actually Top Gun shares more DNA with Flashdance than you, than you might imagine. That's interesting. That's interesting. All right. I got one for you. Jewel of the Nile. Uh, you, know, you know, they're doing another Rambo and Rambo was of that era. So but they, like, they never stopped making Rambo. That's true. Movies, they never so. stopped making Rambo. Like, how about something like Desperately Seeking Susan? Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, I uh, mean, I would be interested to see yet another sequel to an American werewolf in London because an American werewolf in Paris didn't hold up. I'll just say didn't hold up. I don't want to say anything mean about it, it sure. but it wasn't it wasn't up to the standards of an American werewolf in London. There's all kinds of movies, though, that if they really wanted to make a sequel, which kind of captured the imagination of the time. You could do a sequel to War Games. You know, Matthew Broderick's still around. Thousand could, percent. So. Here's one that I can't believe no one's made. Gremlins. Gremlins. Well, they, they made a sequel. Yes. Gremlins, the new batch, which they made just a few years after the first one. But I feel like you could make a Gremlins for today that would be uh, vital and interesting and actually have, you know, because Gremlins is an attack of consumerism. And I feel like you could figure out a way to make Gremlins relevant to today's version of consumerism. I think you're right. I think that Gremlins is actually fairly timeless. I think that you could uh, absolutely bring that back in. And Willow is only from a few years after. I, I, I can't believe that no one's remade They Live. They Live is, oh, kind of, yeah. you know, cult status. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a little bit later. It's like 88, something like that. But it, absolutely. It's not for lack of trying. I know that the same company, I have mildly inside information that's so old that I don't think anyone will care that I say it. But because I had a meeting at Strike Entertainment, the company that made the prequel to the thing. And at that that time they were planning on rolling right into a sequel or a remake or a reboot or something of they live and you know when you look at the success of the halloween reboot that they've done with john carpenter's participation john carpenter seems mm. less less interested in directing new movies as he does seem to like being a guiding force being an executive producer you know maybe not being the person who's up at all hours of the night running around in the cold anymore but guiding these things and i feel like uh, john carpenter has a relatively i'll just say lesser known movie that to me is like one of the most genius concepts he ever made it's called prince of darkness and i feel like there's a whole universe in that movie that you could exploit seriously there's there's so much you could do with that idea and his first movie, I, it's one of my favorite John Carpenter movies, but it's a little obscure, wasn't a big hit. So, you know, probably doesn't happen. Uh, well, you know, I, I passed some guy the other day wearing a They Live shirt and I was just like, there's another one. There's another person who not only feels nostalgic for that movie, but enjoyed it enough that they went out in 2022 to go buy, a, you know, a, a They Live shirt. And, the imagery and proudly, of They Live yeah. is so iconic. And I, and I actually feel like interesting become memes. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I feel like They Live and The Matrix both put this idea in people's heads that was taken by the exact opposite group of people that they were intended for, and they <laughs> and they ran with it, you know, like the idea of being red-pilled, uh, mm -hmm. or the idea that you put on these glasses and you see reality the way you no one else truth. sees it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, hey, Ben, let's get to the interview with Michael Fitzmaurice. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Uh, Michael Fitzmaurice, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you, Ilya, for having me. Uh, I usually have sort of a stock question that I ask everyone uh, when they come on the show. And uh, I already know the answer because I've known you for a very long time. But I, I'm curious to hear your answer for this. And my stock question is, I believe that the best cinematographers 
are part artist and part plumber. You have to be creative, you have to be technical, and having a mixture of both means that you get the, the best images, the best work, you make your days the best. You, you have left brain and right brain working in harmony. On that artist-plumber split, where do you come down? Do you think you're more artist? Do you think you're more plumber? What, what, what do you say? I'm definitely more plumber. I, I would agree. You're, you're one of the more technical people that I know in this business, but your stuff also looks really, really great. And having a very technical palette and technical skill set to play on, I know means that you get to do all kinds of cool, fun things that other people don't even know about. So it's like you, you get to do those things. So how did you become more of a plumber? How far back do you want to go? <laughs> we, we can go back to the beginning. Well, I mean, I yeah, mean we, it, you know, as a lot of us did, I mean, there's, there's two types of people I find in this business. There's people who maybe around college or something like that suddenly discovered cameras and film classes and things like that. And thought, this is great. And then there's other people like me who I kind of grew up around the industry a little bit. And I was fortunate enough to go to a middle school in Burbank, California, John Muir Junior High School. In seventh grade, they had photography class as an elective. And he had a really great photography class. They had, uh, it was between, there was two science classes and in between the two science classes, they converted a big room in there into a full dark room. I got very into photography during a time where they taught you technically about photography before they taught art. It's interesting. My wife later, she took photography courses in college and the course she took started absolutely talking just about composition and subject matter and things like that. And then the advanced class got into teaching you about processing film and everything. Whereas I came from the sort of science side of it and learned about the nuts and bolts of photography. You had to learn about F-stops, ISO, all this stuff before you even really started talking about composition and things. Um, I think in general, my personality is, you know, I'm that kid that liked to take the lawnmower apart. A hundred percent. I'm that same kid. I always, I always was taking things apart. So that, that, that was me. All right. So, so you got the bug in middle school and when did you decide that, or when did you believe that being behind the camera for motion pictures and television and commercials, when, when did that realization set in? I really thought at first that I was just kind of doing print photography and in high school, I was even, I don't know if it was a hustler or a go-getter, which one it was, but I, I was going out like on Ventura Boulevard and handing up like clothing shops and getting in to let me shoot ads for them and stuff like that for at first free, like, but they'd give me clothes and I'd get models and this thing I would do them. And then they were putting it in like LA weekly magazine and stuff like that. And then I got into, then I was getting paid to do it. But the print world, especially fashion is a very clicky sort of thing. It's not like something you just go out there and you're good at taking pictures and do. Most people are good at the technical side of it, pretty much stay assistants in that, that business. Um, through my kind of family connections, I was introduced to a production company, a commercial production company that was owned by a director cameraman named Joe Pitka. And working for Joe, I started working with him when I was in high school, like during some, you know, during summertime. And he owned all of his own camera equipment and they needed a PA type to deal with the equipment in between jobs, getting stuff serviced cleaning, everything that has to go on with, you know, owning equipment like that. And, um, I became that guy and I was there for 10 years. I worked my way up from being that guy there all the way up to being his first, first AC. Joe does a combination of directing and DPing too, if, if, if I recall correctly, and lot, lots of commercials features too, but commercial commercials, biggest commercials type of stuff. Yeah. In that era we were doing, he was like in that top five commercial director world. Every year he was winning awards at Cannes, DGA awards, things like that. It was like him, Leslie Decker, Bob Giraldi. There was a group of them. And it was interesting 
Quite a few of the guys in that era were director cameramen. And he was that way because he actually came a little bit more from the technical side, like we're talking about. He was a chemistry major in Pittsburgh and got a job at a lab there. And through that, got a job at the TV station and started shooting documentary stuff. Uh, matter of fact, he shot a documentary on uh, Mr. Rogers way back then. It was really interesting. So when I was kind of coming into the production side of it, I was learning from somebody who was a director cameraman. So you can imagine when I first went on a set that there was a director and a cameraman, how strange it was for me. These are your formative years. This is your first time on professional sets. You're working on as a loader, second assistant. Where, where, where well, I mean, did sorry, you... as, a, as a PA and then like then camera PA and then loader and then second assistant. I mean, I came all the way through the ranks on this. And we were working on, I would say, some of the biggest commercials there were back then. I mean, such as there was a Michael Jackson Pepsi commercial that was for the Super Bowl back then that was four. Oh, God, one, that was infamous. Yeah, infamous. four one-minute spots that played through it and stuff like that. You know, I worked on that as as a PA. Uh, wow. I even worked, you know, it's funny, I was talking about this the other day. I, we worked on a commercial for the Apple Newton. Oh, yes, I remember the Newton. Yes. <laughs> it, it was just slightly ahead of its time. Just yeah, yeah, there was no, so. there was no, uh, there was no internet or anything to connect it to. It was a great... <laughs> It was, it was the iPhone before there was any connection. Okay, so so you're working as a PA, you're, you're working your way up. Tell me about your your first time behind the camera where you're in charge, where you, it's your vision on the screen. You know, it's funny how that happened for me because it almost happened and I didn't even realize it was happening because working for someone like Joe, for instance, we would shoot like a Nike commercial with Bo Jackson or Michael Jordan or whatever it is. And sometimes the product shot of the shoes, he would say, you know what, we don't need to do it today. We'll just do it back at the office because his office, we had a little stage in back and things like that. And a lot of times it would turn into him saying, listen, go, go set something up in the back, a little turntable, light it. And then he would leave and I would shoot it and everything. And then he would review it later and tell me if he likes it. So I was sort of shooting things from that sense. Now, clearly under his direction and supervision and, uh, you know, all of a sudden one day I found myself like shooting a music video and because I was working and then I suddenly one day I was shooting this music video and then I shot another music video and it actually took a while till I realized like, oh wait, I'm, I'm actually DPing. So it wasn't like that one big job where it's suddenly like, that's it. It's clear. It's a clear cut thing. Here I am now, you know, I did that. And then I still worked as an assistant, then eventually as a camera operator and worked on a lot of big movies as a camera operator and things. But simultaneously I was shooting car commercials or shooting a short film. I think that happens actually for a lot of people. I think that when you're working your way up in the uh, traditional hierarchy of the camera department, you get these little breaks, you get these little opportunities, but that's not necessarily what pays your bills. And I feel like for the people who just came out of film school or decided one day, I'm a DP, I think they missed out. They missed out a little bit on knowing who the rest of your crew are that support you in exactly what they do and knowing their job and knowing it inside and out. And if then if you had to, for some reason, whatever, like do something else, you've got that skill set. So do you think that that serves you well now that having all of that, those plumbing skills, having all that technical stuff, does that help you now in the in the creative world? Or do you think that really, you know, if you never have to touch another mag again, it'll be too soon? No, I love the fact that I know a lot about it. I mean, there was a period where I actually worked in the art department and my stepfather growing up was a key grip. And I, as a kid, used to help and I could tell you everything about how to set a C-stand properly and put a flag on it. And I, I see it all the time. I see people do it wrong and I know it, Dana, and I can correct people. And I debate this subject a lot, though. 
I do debate it a lot. There is some interesting things about somebody who just focuses on their craft being a DP or a director or something from like film school. And then that's kind of just, they come out of the box and that's what they do. There's an interesting thing where they really just focus on that. Uh, when you're somebody who's come up through the crew and everything, I find there's times where you, you maybe will have an idea of doing something and you think that's just way too hard for the guys. And this, you know, that's asking a lot. And then from an artist's point of view, like, well, you should do what your vision is, but there's times where you, you'll, you'll limit yourself because you know how difficult that's going to be technically for the crew. So I, I debate constantly, is it better to come up through the ranks or is it better really just to come out of the box doing the job you want to do? And I think from the way we see it, coming up through the ranks is a very good thing. You should know all the different crafts and what people do on set. It actually helps a lot. I mean, I, I've been there as an assistant or an operator working with DPs who just were always a DP and watch them look at somebody and just be like, Hey, you, what do you do? Like, do this, do that. And they're like, well, that's not my job. And it's like, well, what is your job? You know? And it's like, come on, you should know this, you know? And this is somebody I'm looking at going, this guy shot big movies, you know? And he like, he doesn't understand what these people do. And, but like he's shooting big movies and he has shoots beautiful stuff. Right. So there, there's something to be said though, too. I think about the person who just says, Hey, this is my thing and I'm going to dedicate my life to it. And I think that the people who do come out fully formed, they miss a little bit of something and they have to work harder to then make sure that they are cognizant of all the different roles of everyone else. The whole world doesn't necessarily revolve around them. They have to, they got to work with people. It's collaboration. And then again, too, I think on the other side, if you come up, you know, the crew, maybe it's like yourself and you now have to bifurcate your brain. You have to decide, you know what? Hey, this shot's going to totally suck, dude, but I need you to suck it up and get it done because that's, that's how it's going to go. Well, okay, so so tell me about, uh, you've got a ton of, of operating credits. You've, you've operated on a lot of different things, and I know that you've done a ton of aerial work. So how did you get into doing aerials? How, how did that come about? Well, as much as I love cinematography, I love flying. So I'm a pilot. I have an airplane. Since I was very young, I had that, you know, you have those things in life, and you're like, one is I really wanted to be a pilot, and the other is I really wanted to shoot movies. And so they kind of go hand in hand, and and. Have I been airsick? Yes, I've gotten airsick before. It, it's hard not to. There are some guys out there that never do, and I don't know how they do it, but I'm pretty good. I can handle a lot in a helicopter, in, in jets and things like that. And I really understand all the physics of what's happening with aircraft and how they need to be positioned to get good shots. And early on, if you wanted to do aerials, uh, when you hired West Cam, Space Cam, whatever it was back then, or even, well, Tyler Mounts. A lot of times you were forced to kind of use an aerial DP, um, especially with the gyro heads. They made you, you could only use operators and DPs that were kind of signed off to use those things. And it drove me crazy in the early days of me shooting car commercials. Like I want to do it myself. I had a, an idea of how I wanted to do it. And so I went to these places and I went to West Cam actually. And the guys there at their place, they, they put a West Cam on a golf cart, went around and I showed them how I operated. And I took to it really well because I had operated a lot of remote heads before that. That, you know, it's another thing, like who wants to pay the money for a helicopter and all the things that go with that for a guy to learn. So that's a reason it's hard to get into yeah. doing aerials. So, you know, I pushed my way to do it because I wanted to do it. I had good ideas for what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it and started doing it. And as I did it, I, I had a knack for it. And, and of course, um, a couple of the different pilots I worked with, people in the aerial world saw that, that I had a knack for it. So people recommended me and it, that's how doing aerials kind of grew. I'd have to say a majority of the work I've gotten aerials, other than my own jobs, car commercials, stuff like that, that I've been doing it through was because of like a pilot and a particular pilot I was working with 
recommending to the producers, like, you know, you got to really take a look at Michael Foot's race. I, I mean, yeah, word of mouth is the way that I think most people get their gigs and that's the best way to get them as well. But I mean, if you want to talk about an insulated small community, it's got to be aerial DPs. There's not there. I mean, there's just not a lot of people who not a lot of people doing that. There's not that much work for there to be a lot of people. And like I said, it is a very special skill set, especially when we were shooting film. When we were shooting film, you were you weren't just, you know, being able to like look at a scope and set your exposures and stuff. You're having to quickly, you know, pull out your spot meter and if you ever try using an incident meter and a helicopter, it's pretty tough, right? <laughs> so I mean it's a lot of us, you know, be really good with the spot meter and things and setting your yeah, exposures yeah. and you know, then doing the composition. And it's a it's a weird experience to be looking in a monitor and making the image do one thing, but your body is doing something completely different. Um I've had many, many people in the helicopter next to me, directors, absolutely. I look over them and they are green and yeah. I have to tell the pilot, like land, 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 you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's hard for people. And then afterwards, you know, people can walk around you can teach them some of the tricks about like only focus certain percentage of your time to the screen and the other percentage to looking outside and there's tricks to it. Um, but that, that's a big thing. There's a lot of people that would love to do it and, and they get in there and try it and it doesn't work. But like I said. How do you put someone new in that position when you have this helicopter that, you know, on average, you're going to spend forty five, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a day for the helicopter, plus the systems and everything. I mean, you can easily get a $100,000 a day just for the helicopter and crew. From a producer's point of view, it's really hard to put someone new in that seat. You were the uh, aerial director of photography for Fast and Furious. I have to imagine that, especially, I think you, you were in second unit, and I know that you guys get all the fun stuff. Second unit gets to do all like, you know, stunts and explosions and, and all that. So, so all the car uh, chases, explosions, all the, you know, fireballs, you know, everything. Yeah, that's a big part of the reason that people are putting their butts in the seats, too, is to go see like all this incredible action and things. I know you've done it for aerial work on all kinds of other movies, too, including uh, Godzilla and Jumanji and recently, of course, Sonic the Hedgehog and, of course, uh, Top Gun Maverick. Tell me about working on something the size and scope of Top Gun as a, an aerial DP. You've probably got all the tools at your disposal, all the all the fun stuff. Are you working in, in jets or copters or combination or uh, we were using two different jets? platforms we were using there's another trick to doing aerials sometimes you're you're not shooting from an aircraft you're actually up on a mountaintop or something like that and it's understanding what you want to see the aircraft doing and it, you know that that whole howard hughes movie where they sat there and talked about oh all the places that look like they're going fast you know it's true if you don't have background if you don't have certain things happening so there's a lot of tricks to it um top gun was a huge huge aerial movie it, i you know jerry brecker we said it himself he's like i don't think there'll ever be an aerial movie bigger. It was from a producer's point of view, it was a monster. And it wasn't just me. It was uh, the other aerial DP on the movie was David Knoll. And David Knoll, if you look his credits up, he's like the godfather of aerial. I mean, David, somebody I've known for a lot of times and I really look up to, and it was amazing to be able to work side by side with him to do this movie. And yeah, we used, uh, we had an L-39 fighter jet that has a camera system on it. It's called the Cine jet. Then we had a um, another sort of biz jet that's been converted for doing aerials. It's a, it's a Phenom 300 is the platform, and it has a shot over on the front and the back. And a shot over for our, our listeners who aren't sure what that is. It's essentially, it's a stabilized camera platform that's attached to the nose or the belly or, or some portion of that so that no matter how much uh, vibration or G-force, this shot still looks smooth. Yes, it is a gimbal that is stabilized so that if you're shaking around and you're upside down, whatever you're doing, it'll correct a lot and make the image nice. There's something about really getting it in camera that 
no CG has the same impact. I mean, it's like it's, there's something visceral, I would say. The other thing I would say about a movie that size is it was amazing the amount of organization there was. It wasn't just go out and shoot this stuff. It was sitting in all the meetings with all the actors and Joe Kaczynski, the director, and Claudio Miranda, the first unit DP, and talking about how they were going to do the scene. And the actors would kind of work through what they think they were going to do the scene. And I had to sit there and take, it was not just me, a few of us, we had to sit there and take really good notes. And understanding aviation like I do, that's the big part about it. not just being a DP, but when you're talking about doing aerials, really understanding if you're talking about doing an ailment or, you know, different types of aerobatic maneuvers, understanding what that is. So I quickly take notes so that I had to have a complete understanding of what those aircraft would look like doing what the actors were talking about doing the way they're looking. You know, remember, you got to think about, well, the actor's screen direction is, you know, Monica's in there and she's looking this way and she's looking this way. Well, we've got to then remember when we're shooting it up in the air that that other jet's going to come up on this side of her, you know, so the screen directions properly and stuff like that. So, you know, other movies, you kind of go through the scenes, you break them down, you do that, but nowhere near the level that this movie was done. It was all these scenes were put together. The actors would kind of work out what they wanted to do. We would digest that. We would take uh, models or stuff. They probably shot more footage with my iPhone of little models, creating the scenes and figuring out how to do, do everything. And then Took that to the editor and put that all together in, you know, in an edit. Then we went out and shot it. Yeah, it was big. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of flying. And I mean, I don't know how many pages of that movie, but I'm guessing that the number of days that you worked was considerable. You had any idea for like number of shooting days for Top Gun? Yeah, you know, I don't remember the amount of shooting days. Like I said, a lot of the days were just meetings and working out the scenes and breaking down the storyboards. You know, I, I keep saying we need to make a T-shirt. We need to make a t-shirt with the stats, right? Like, you know, you know, this many hours of this jet flow and this many hours of that, this many shoot days, all that. It'd be neat to go through and break down the stats. But the aerial team on that movie was on the movie for over a year. Over a year. Yeah. So over a year of pre-production, production, production uh, all the breakdowns, all the safety, all the everything coordinating with all the, the other departments and teams. That's a massive project. And, you know, it seems about right, though, because I don't think I saw you maybe but once like a year ago. So I think you were gone for most of that time. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. You know, like uh, Joe Kosinski, the, the director, was great. Tom Cruise, great to work with. I mean, he loves aviation. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's also, also a pilot. So, yeah, you guys no, probably have plenty, plenty to talk about. No, so. you're, you're, you're going to see him really flying aircraft in that movie. I mean, there's there's a lot of times he's flying aircraft. So, nice. Hey, I happen to know that you're a big fan of Sigma lenses, their particular brand of, of cine lenses. And my understanding is that Sigma lenses got used quite a bit for some aerials on, on Top Gun. Can you tell me anything about how the Sigma selection came to be made? Because they're, they're a newer brand. A lot of people don't really know about Sigma. And they're coming from a, a still photography world. And this is their first real foray into lenses for cinema. You're right. I am a fan of the Sigma lenses. I have this thing where I like to shoot, like the last two movies that I was the first unit director, uh, DP on, I used old vintage lenses like Cook Pancros or things like that. And I like playing with different optics for building emotions and creating emotion. And But when you're doing something like shooting the interior of someone's car, they really don't want you shooting the interior of their car with a K95 with some other weird you know, thing going on and coatings are mixing the lenses. You mean the K35. I knew what you meant, but we're in this pandemic mode right now. K95. Oh, yeah, yeah, is, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> K35, yeah. But, but, but you're exactly right. Yeah, the, 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 the K35s, the uh, Canon old, yeah. And with full frame format cameras coming around, I 
was sort of searching for something that would be a really nice quality lens, have some nice flare and stuff, but be a little bit more technically perfect, a little bit more like what Zeiss Super Speeds used to be in their day. You know, they were considered at a time to be a great lens, but then if, as better lenses came along. And um, as you know, I, I looked at a few different types of brands of lenses, and then we came across the Sigmas, and I loved them. They're great. They're, they're, there's a lot of purpose for it. I'm very excited about the new Sigmas. Yeah, the, those Sigma classic lenses are really interesting. I yeah, think they, no, they're they really great. And so I'm very excited about the idea of maybe getting a set of them because now having the, the standard Sigmas and the Sigma classics, I, I would absolutely carry both sets of lenses on some projects because, you know, there's always that time where you're using a lens that has a little, I like to call a lot of characteristic. And suddenly you're doing a shot where that a lot of characteristic is really fighting you. Like that flare is constantly sitting right on the main actor's face or something, you know, and it's too much and you need to like tone it back. So well, the great thing with the Sigmas is you can then pop in the standard Sigma and boom. So I was looking to these, as you know, I bought a set. They're sharp. They're sharp. They're nice. Very flat. They're very sharp at all the corners. At the same time, they have a nice look. Uh, well, any big takeaways, anything from Top Gun that you had never done before that there was a technological hurdle or something that worth mentioning? Oh man, there's a lot of stuff that happened on that movie. <laughs> I had many times where I was, uh, suddenly took my eyes out of the monitor to look outside to see that we were upside down and this way. And there was so many crazy things that happened. Um, I mean, the Cinege, the, the phenom I'm talking about, and all these platforms were all sort of developed for that movie. There was other platforms that run jets before, but it was like, that has to be refined. It needs to be better. It needs to be able to go faster, better. And the Cine jet came out of that, spent a lot, a lot of hours on it. It's not every day you get to sit in an ejection seat, you know, you're operating a camera. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> Getting to fly the approach to aircraft carriers out on the Pacific ocean. And that's another one that goes in the book has got to do that, you know, so. Did you land on an aircraft carrier too? No, we weren't allowed to land on the aircraft carrier, but we were allowed to come very, very low and down, fly down the deck. So, whoa. All right. Nice. Oh, well, I know you're also a pilot, though. Did, you, did they ever get uh, a chance to relinquish control to you? In the city jet, there was a lot of times we were having to fly from like point A to point B when we're not shooting. And uh -huh. um, it's great in the back seat where I said that I have full controls of the jet because those. Those jets were actually designed as trainer jets, so the instructor would be in the back. So, of course, the controls in the back have to have full controls. As a matter of fact, there's uh, some stuff back there that if you accidentally bump in the back seat, it takes control away from him in front. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like the student driver with the brake control and everything else that they can. You're putting us in jeopardy. I can, I can take it all away from you. Yeah, so there was some stuff I had to be trained on to know that like if, if suddenly he lost he didn't have brakes or something there was a little lever that i had to like flick to make sure that he regained that controllers you know it was definitely right. a perk to being a pilot and understanding everything going on around me and being able to you know help look things over and check things and uh it, it sounds amazing I, I can't wait to see this 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 will be great You've worked with Matty Libatique, I know, on Iron Man. He's also been on the show. I mean, geez, I don't even know where to start here for all these people. Hey, listen, I would say in my career, probably the biggest movies I did were the um, Top Gun's big, right? But the work I did with Chris Nolan and Wally Pfister, by far, that those were huge movies. And that was such an amazing process, you know, working with film, not only film, but you're working with IMAX. And we're shooting scenes with IMAX cameras and, and everything I did on that. If you were to ever ask me, like, what is the most memorable 
biggest scale shot I've ever had my hands on the camera doing. And it would be in the dark night when Heath Ledger is leaving the hospital, that whole wonder of him coming out of the hospital, walking, everything starts blowing up. That was all real. There, there was no CG in there. That's not Chris Nolan. Chris Nolan, it's, it's, it's real. It's really happening. It was one take and it was a one take deal. I mean, the pressure was just crazy on that, right? So here's the beauty and you know about this stuff. And that is IMAX cameras have or had the most horrible video taps ever, right? Because that's yeah, not what they were doing. So <laughs> here we are, we're like, we're looking at Keith being the Joker. He's inside the hospital. He was, it was hilarious. He's sitting there in there you know, on a bench waiting for everything to get ready in a building that is rigged with, I don't know how many hundred, hundreds of gallons of diesel to blow up and all this stuff. And he's in there just hanging in and waiting, you know, like, so we start the shot where I'm looking indoors, right? And so the image looked okay. It was a little dark. As soon as we came outside, that video tap suddenly just went white. Everything was clipping. It was just super overexposed. I could just make out shapes. And there was like this whole, like on the radio, this freak out, like, dude, do we, do we What's going on? Yeah, yeah, what do we do? And I'm having to go, I got it, I got it. I mean, fortunately he had all that dark eye makeup on, right? And I could still see that detail. I could still kind of see him, you know, and, and hold that shot together. And, you know, at the end where, you know, that whole thing where he stops and hits the thing and turns around, that was all ad-libbed. That wasn't supposed to happen. Heath did an amazing job at like the explosion not going off. He realized, so he stopped and he looked at it and he messed around and he was, you know, it honestly, he was thinking like, are they going to call cut and redo it or whatever? But he being the, the actor he was, he just kept going with it and we're doing it. And I'm yelling in the car at the driver, like stay with him, stay with him, stay with him, get ready for him to walk, you know, or it's like all this craziness going on in the middle of that shot. But you know, in hindsight, that shot was massive. And the funny thing is none of us really knew what we had in the frame. At the time, <laughs> at the time, yeah. even afterwards, you're watching video playback. You're not, it's this film, right? You don't need, you don't know what you got. You, you know, the dynamic range is there. You have a, a general idea of the framing. You just have to kind of trust that the film gods have taken care of you, that there hasn't been a problem. But we blew up a whole building. I mean, you remember it, the whole <laughs> building blew up. We dropped it. There's no take two. There's no reshooting no. it next week. No, you, you're going to have to go look at your, your dailies and figure out whether or not this is, yeah. yeah. And this is IMAX. This is IMAX and we're working in Chicago. So yeah, yeah. your turnaround is like, I mean, that, those shots, they put it on the super rush, right? So two days later, we got to see dailies. <laughs> to, and, and thank goodness that your skill and making sure that, you know, the frame was all protected actually pays off. It actually, it pays off and it's the, you know, it's part of movie history now. Which yeah, is, it was an amazing, amazing experience to be sitting in. We, we would screen dailies at the um, IMAX theater on Navy Pier in Chicago. Yeah, that, that's the other thing, too. It's like your dailies. If you really want to see your dailies, you have to look at a film daily. You have to look at it projected. Otherwise, you don't know. You you can't look at a postage stamp on your phone or on a laptop monitor or even like, you know, maybe a, uh, a normal cinema screen. You're not going to get the effect unless you're in IMAX, unless you know what that's like. So we're working all night and at like 630, 7 o'clock in the morning, you would leave set, go to the Navy Pier IMAX theater, go in there. You know, and it's so weird. It's seven o'clock in the morning. You've been working all night. And now here you are watching dailies. And when that shot came up and it played through, it was great. It was it was a highlight of my career right there. You know, and, and Chris and Wally stood up and came back over the seats because I was three rows behind him, high fiving and the whole thing. And it was it was really amazing. So, Michael Fitzmaurice, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Well, thank you, Ilya. It was a lot of fun. I can't wait to do it again. 
So that was uh, Michael Fitzmaurice. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I can't wait to uh, have you back sometime in the near future and tell us uh, all about whatever you're working on. I'm looking forward to it. And congratulations on Top Gun Maverick. Holy crap. Just a huge mega monster hit. It, it sure is. So, Ben, guess what? What? <laughs> it's time to pay them bills. Let's pay them bills. All right. So we have to thank our good friends over at Airy, makers, of course, of uh, fine lighting equipment and lenses and, of course, cameras. And it is one of those sort of blue moon moments right now. It maybe only comes along once in a decade or something like that. They have a new Super 35, uh, which is the image sensor size uh, camera coming out called the Alexa 35. And it is a big, big deal. Airy has teased the release of this camera now for about three years. Said there's something coming. The next camera will be 35 millimeter sized, as in traditional motion picture academy size, not this full frame format, which is a still format, which is sort of bled over into cinema. Well, Airy told me on multiple occasions they were not going to come out with this new camera until it was significantly better than previous cameras. And oh, mama. Uh, they are not kidding. They, they have come out with something really, really special, including uh, probably the most dynamic range of any camera out there in the world. It's got uh, a true measured 17 stops of dynamic range. Whoa, really? Yes. And it is uh, launching. By the time this episode goes live, it will be launched. So really all of this stuff is fine. But I'm going to spill the beans on some of the, the stuff about this camera. Um, By the way, I, I've remained uh, intentionally ignorant about this because I wanted to hear it from you in this segment. So uh, all my reactions are genuine. I still don't know anything except for 17 stops of dynamic range. Yes. And uh, it's small. It's uh, similar to their current sort of flagship camera, which is the Alexa Mini LF, which is our large format sensor. Which stands for Larry Fong, correct? (laughs) That's what Larry told me. Yes, I'm going to say that's correct. Larry Fong, it stands for Larry Fong. But uh, they they might also say it stands for large format, but Uh, that's that's debatable. It's a low light camera. They say it does well all the way up to 6400 ISO, which uh, would not surprise me. And they include this chart in the in the presentation for dealers that shows where, you know, your middle gray is. And so you can count the number of stops, you know, below and over. And it's truly supposed to be like an 800 ISO, 800 ASA camera. But if you're at something like 3200 ISO, your 18% middle gray falls pretty low. But that gives you like 11 stops of overexposure. And when you think about 11 stops of overexposure, if you just go That's back a nuts. few years ago... There was a lot of cameras that didn't have 11 stops total. And now we're talking about just that above your middle gray, which no, no, uh, that's that's insane. I mean, I would love to see a test of that, though. Like, so if you're if you're convert this to idiot, i.e. me. So, like, let's <laughs> say you're shooting and somehow you accidentally overexposed it by four stops. Are you yeah. able to pull it back and get your image back? You're, you're probably going to be able to do pretty well. Depending on what your ISO is, depending on a number of features. Uh, also, uh, I mean, you got to be asleep at the switch to overexpose by four stops, but still. Yes, uh, that that's highly unlikely to happen. But your ability to recover, your ability to have extra range is is uh, is unprecedented. Uh, they have a new color science. They're they're touting a lot. There's also a new log mode, which is a big deal. The new log mode they're calling log C4. Uh, the original log C equals log C3. But so this this new one log C4, which is going to provide extra extra range. There's two recording methods internally. One is uh, Airy Raw, which is their raw recording flavor, and then uh, ProRes. 
ProRes is the other option. So uh, it's got a, a sensor with 4.6K in. Uh, that was my next question. Yeah, because yeah. Aerie has notoriously appeared to have lower resolution, although the argument was always it's not the number of pixels, it's the quality of the pixels. Uh, I think that's very, very true. And if you just have one really incredible pixel or basically something that functions feeling like one pixel because your math is so good in your in your bear patterns, that's way better than having tons and tons of little pixels packed in there that which then might not be that sensitive to light. But 4.66K in their open gate format. And then they have a whole lot of different ways that you can window that into other aspect ratios. And they have 120 frames per second maximum speed now, I think, at 4K. So these are all sort of like, you know, they, the, the different sorts of features that, uh, that people have come to expect. But there's something new, something that is not found in any other camera out there yet. They're calling Airy Textures. And Airy Textures is essentially giving creative control over the noise, over the perceived grain of the image to then the filmmaker. And essentially, this is something that's happening in the camera. It's baked in and it's happening really, really early in the process. So they're giving you like 30 different parameters and a whole bunch of presets. You don't get the ability to customize every single one of these yet, but I have a feeling that's probably coming in the future. And they're going to do a really good job of explaining it's better than I can right here, but if you wanted something, and the examples that they give in our sort of PowerPoint presentation here is something more nostalgic. And so they have a, an option called uh, nostalgic. And when you turn on nostalgic, it gives you more texture, more of sort of like a traditional film sort of look on top of the image, which is really interesting. And it's built in there native to what's going on. There's always going to be something and you can choose how little or how much you want, but there's a bunch of different sort of creative flavors. And, uh, you know, I got to say back in 2000. Six. This is something that we talked about doing at Dalsa. We talked about doing this. We said that, you know, this is something that's absolutely capable. And here it is all these years later and no one has done it until now. And uh, this is kind of amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really blown away. The camera is ever so slightly larger than the Mini LF. It's mostly wider. And they actually have something that that is, is pretty clever. It's actually something that exists on some other cameras out there. But there's expansion modules that you can attach to the back. You can't stack them. You can't put them in any order that you want. But there is actually an audio module now and a power distro module. But that audio module really will solve the problem for a lot of people who wanted something that it was probably a little bit more like an Amira, something with preamps so that you could get easily scratch audio without having to do a multi-pin connector and an offboard mm. audio box of some sort. So now there's a module that goes around the back, which is, which is very cool. Most of the menus and most of the functionality seems uh, very similar. So anyone who's already used to Airy cameras are going to be able to uh, feel right at home. And there's a ton of different options. I really don't want to talk about it too much more here because spoiler alert, I'm probably going to talk about it as my short end again at the end of this episode, because there's just so much cool stuff in it. And of course, Hot Red Cameras is selling it. We have a pre-order going and we're not charging a deposit. In the past, Aerie has charged deposits to dealers, which meant that dealers had to go out to customers and say, hey, give us several thousand dollars to make sure that we hold one of these for you. Uh, Aerie didn't do that this time, so we're passing that on to our customers. And my understanding is some of our competitors might be charging actually some deposits out there. So I think that that uh, is actually something really nice that our clients will appreciate being able to order a camera and not have to have some money held. But here's two exciting bits of information. Aries says that the camera is coming quickly, like July. They don't say when in July, but July is like 
it's it's a month away. So even if you go the end of July, that's two months. That usually doesn't happen with camera releases. Usually they say, hey, it's a new flagship camera and uh, you, <laughs> you place your order now. We'll hold on to that money for a bit and you'll get it when you get it. There's another big camera manufacturer throwing no one under the bus who's doing that right now. And it's drove, driven a lot of their customers pretty crazy waiting for this camera. Aries not doing that. The other thing is, is that because it's all of this amazing technology, you would think it would come with a very, very high price that like, you know, Aries already is sort of like, you know, one of the highest priced cameras out there. So this camera must be that much more expensive. It's basically the same price as their current flagship camera. So it comes in around $78,000. When you're talking about media and everything else, it's about 85,000. You throw a little batteries in there. Maybe it's a, you know, another grand or two above that. But still, when you're talking about the, you know, the system that 90% of like airy cameras were used for like 90% of can this year, airy cameras are used to shoot mm. a, a preponderance of Academy Award winning movies. It's like they are really, really like ubiquitous in this world. And I, I say sometimes like, you know, uh, in the rental world, you can, of course, use anything you want. You can buy anything you, you want. You know, movies are made with all kinds of different technology out there. But really for high end rentals, it's Aries world and we're all just living in it because that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what it is. Anyway, so, so Ben, that was a very, very long commercial. But at the same time, this technology is is a really big deal. And I assure you that everyone who follows this in the business is going to hear a lot of it in the coming months because it only happens, like I said, every, every once in a while and it's finally happened again. That's cool. That's cool. And I have to say, by the way, uh, I'm not picking on Larry Fong. When we had him in here, he made he made an offhanded joke that the <laughs> Alexa LF. It was yeah, it was his joke. Uh, the Alexa LF was uh, stood for Larry Fong. But I should say, and I Larry sometimes listens to the show. Whenever I hear Alexa LF, I think of him. I I, I I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's the Larry Fong camera. I know, yeah. you know. Anyway, yeah, 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 uh, absolutely. And now, short ends. So Ben, it's short end time. What is your obsession this week? What are you What are you into? What What's going on in your world? Well, uh, I had a meeting with somebody about a job, and I don't want to get into too much about it. But one of the people who was involved in it is a woman named Carmiel Banaski. I hope I have her name right. She has a website that I think is really cool, and a lot of our filmmaker screenwriter types might want to check it out. It's called Good Energy, and it's at goodenergystories.com. And it's a playbook for screenwriting in the age of climate change. And so Carmiel is very interested in the hard science of climate change, but also she's a novelist. She's, she's a writer. And so this website, it's fascinating. It just has ideas for writing and ideas for kind of putting climate change ideas into your screenplay, but making the writing still be good. <laughs> like it's not <laughs> about how to write polemics about climate change. But it's about sort of how to position climate change within your narrative if you want to make climate change a thing that's in your writing. And I've clicked around, I've read some of the articles and stuff in it, and I just think it's friggin' smart. Like, it's just unbelievably smart. I, I love stuff like this. Like, there's a thing called the Science and Entertainment Exchange that basically pairs scientists with filmmakers to kind of do consulting so that the science isn't stupid in people's movies they do like live presentations and stuff and i feel like this kind of sits in that world as well 
And uh, I hope that most of the people who are listening to this believe in climate change. But, you know, for those of you who don't still check this out, because it's a good way to look at if you have an idea that's a big idea that you're trying to get across in your movie. How do you hardwire that into the script and not just make it on the nose polemic stuff that people tune out? And and by the way, I don't think this necessarily merits a a whole short end in and of itself. But there was something else that I wanted to shout out. There is an online game called Framed. Have you played it? Never. Framed.wtf. So it's basically Wordle, if you're a Wordle fan, except it's doing it with movie frames. Hmm. And I had been playing it for weeks when I realized that it was created by Shot Deck. Hmm. It's a part of Shot Deck. So how does this relate to... It, it, it doesn't. Uh, it, do, it, it doesn't relate <laughs> so at all. So you have two short ends. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm kind of d- doubling up here. Yeah. Right, no, so, good, so give me the, t- the name of that once again. Good Energy. It's at goodenergystories.com. All right. So can someone send this link to Roland Emmerich, please? I mean, really, <laughs> he needs to spend some time on this site. I mean, Wait, I, you mean <laughs> the, the moon isn't a hollow vessel for alien <laughs> nanobots? Uh, I was thinking more like Day After Tomorrow and some of like the one of my 2012 all of his movies all of his Uh, movies Roland Demmerich is like on the wrong side of everything in a weird way although like (laughs) you know he obviously believes in climate change and is like pushing for it but he also made a movie about how Shakespeare didn't write any of Shakespeare's plays just nutty stuff Well, I think he needs to spend some time there because, uh, you know, I do enjoy a good disaster movie. But boy, if that disaster movie could be like steeped in science, that might be really. How badass would it be if somebody made like a serious disaster movie? I mean, like you could do it because you can look at what climate change is going to do. And there's going to be some big disasters. There already have been. So, Elias, sorry to double up on my uh, short ends. I was just excited to see that framed.wtf is brought to you by Shot Deck. Uh, and yeah, and I think that that's awesome. All right, so Ilya, what is your short end this week? Well, you know what my short end is. It's just more rambling on about Aries' new camera, but you know, it, it is sort of a big deal, and I just kind of want to talk about a couple of things to make it even cooler and better than I think that people are, are aware of. It's got the largest operating temperature range. Uh, like uh, some people might know that cameras, when they get too hot, they will crap out and others when they uh, get too cold uh, crap out this will go negative 20 celsius all the way to plus 113 fahrenheit so that's equivalent to like negative 4 fahrenheit to 113 fahrenheit Uh, it's more splash and dust proof than any previous airy camera which was already pretty good about you know getting wet and everything else it's going to be extremely dependable and have a really long life cycle and uh, I, I will tell you that that's kind of a that's kind of a big deal. It also is compatible with all these other uh, third-party tools that are out there. It's got tons of different sort of uh, looks. And yeah, there's the Airy Look Library that can go with it. And it comes in a couple of different packages, including a production package, which is basically ready to shoot with all of these sort of uh, typical accessories you would want, sort of cage and EVF mounts. And then they also have a lightweight package, which is a couple thousand dollars less expensive. But the whole thing has been optimized with different accessories to make it super lightweight and easy to use uh, either handheld or on Steadicam or on gimbals and and all that kind of stuff. So I I don't want to belabor this too much, but it is a big deal. All this stuff is going to go live on the Hot Red Camera site, but it's not just going to be our site. It's going to be on Aerie's site. It's going to be everywhere. If you can hear my voice right now, it's uh, the embargoes are all lifted. 
the information is out there and there's about a dozen movies that are premiering on Tuesday at the DGA and also at a theater in, in New York and there's gonna be a lot of people talking about it it's a it's an invite only event and it's or, it's already completely sold out and uh, I have no idea how how many people are gonna be packed in there but uh, I'll, I'll give you a report afterwards it'll be interesting all right can't wait yeah I can't wait to see something from this camera yeah, it should, it should be really good. It's going to be a really wonderful tool. And I already know that some top end people have been playing around with it a little. It's a, since the camera's been sort of in development f- for such a long period of time, they've had prototype cameras that have been able to do real work on real sets. And uh, we, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about that coming soon. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, God. I, didn't, I forgot one more thing. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> it's a new battery mount and a new battery system. And not too many camera manufacturers can just say, hey, we're coming out with a new mount and we want a whole bunch of other third party companies to make batteries that work with it. And batteries are not a sexy thing, but they're really, really important. And so this is a 24 volt camera. And their new mount system allows you to put batteries on that can switch between 24 and 12 so you can keep using them. And there's going to be a bunch of adapters for people's old systems to use their new batteries on older camera systems. They're calling it the B-mount and holy crap, like all the big battery companies are on board and we just had to buy a ton of batteries. So I have a feeling that I have a feeling that you're going to start seeing this very low profile battery mount make its way really quickly across the industry and it's called the B-mount. So professional batteries, B-mount coming native on the new Aerie Alexa 35. Interesting, interesting. I I do remember uh, getting into an argument with the Black Magic people when they had their first. Uh, it wasn't it was their two point five k production camera when they first came out with it, and they uh, didn't have and and they were like, oh, battery manufacturers will make a battery for it. It was just kind of <laughs> le- left like there was no battery, and I'm like, wait, I'm paying for what? But yeah, uh, the it's, internal it's, battery. How could you possibly need anything else? They 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 learned that lesson. <laughs> Yeah, but when when you get to area and like that level of stuff, you know, I, I'm interested to see what the B mount looks like. Like you said, like they're just so deeply enmeshed within the industry that I, I feel like their thinking is always a little forward, but also right on target with what people need right this second. You know, competitive with what's out there right now, and then pushing it a little bit further. And then you know, so like there's almost no chance that this camera doesn't take off, and we're seeing movies winning Oscars that are shot on it. Uh, oh, no, I, I firmly believe that this camera is going to go from zero to 60 in like, uh, you know, three days. <laughs> and I say this having literally known nothing about this camera until uh, this ep- until these host wraps that we're recording right now. Yeah, I, I think it, it's going to be a really big deal. And I'm going to stop yapping about it because, oh, my God, there's going to be so much. Uh, and to me, it's like the rebirth of the Alexa. It's kind of like starting all over again. It's like it's like 2010 for them. It, it's going to be a it's it's a major it's a major to do. Very exciting. Very, very exciting. So, uh, Ilya, uh, where can people find you? Hey, uh, find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. If you'd like a new Alexa 35, contact me over at Hot Rod Cameras or anyone else on my team. Happy to help with that. Uh, I'm there uh, much of the time, although sometimes a little bit less. But you can get a hold of me pretty easily if you are willing to leave a message and uh, and I'll get back to you. Ben, where can people find you? Where, where are you? It never gets old. You can find me at BenRock.com. That's exciting. BenRock.com. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to like the last six yeah, episodes. I'm not yeah. going to I'm not going to rehash it. You can find me there. And also on Facebook, the group uh, needs a werewolf. But if you go to BenRock.com, all my social media stuff is there. Uh, people who are uh, listeners to the show constantly uh, friend me on the various platforms and uh, always like hearing from people who listen to the show. So thank you, everybody who bothers listening to Ilya and me uh, yammer our faces off every week. Hey, Ben, uh, let's thank some people. Who do we have to thank? Uh, well, first off, Alana Cody. 
how, how, how can we not thank Alana Cody for all the hard work that she does in uh, getting us some of these amazing interviews? And also, in the case of today's interview, just keeping tabs on what we've done so that it gets released at exactly the right time. Yeah, this so easily could have been lost to the ages had uh, years ago we released this interview with Michael Fitzmaurice. Uh, I'm really hoping that, you know, t- being timely now, uh, more people will be exposed to it and more people will get something out of it because, uh, you know, we did do a little tease during the pandemic. We did a thing for Sigma and I took about like a 20 minute section of this interview and kind of put it out into the world. But now you're getting the full mamma jamma. So you're getting the full thing. So. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, let us thank Ben Katz, who uh, whose life we are not making easy today. So uh, I'm sorry, Ben Katz. Ben, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. Thank you for for for, ma- for making this work. For those of you who don't know, Ben, Ben is our editor. Ben uh, takes this uh, giant wad of garbage that we hand him and sculpts a perfect Michelangelo David statue out of it, out of our voices once a week. I don't know if it's quite garbage, but it definitely is some free flowing riverbed clay. It is like Fair. some clay that really needs to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you didn't say it was like a sewer hose. It was like a sewer hose and he takes all the stuff and he turns it into a thing. You're the one who brought up the sewer hose. I, I, I understood that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, and uh, lastly, we, sh- we should thank uh, Kay's Alatrakshi. Check him out at musicbykays.com. He composed every scrap of music that you heard on here. He also color grades. He does visual effects. He directs. He DPs. He's DP'd some stuff. He dances. He, I, I, I haven't seen that. And we were just talking uh, before we recorded these raps about uh, some possible new music that we might be asking Case for. Hey, uh, listeners, if you hear the sound of my voice now and you have music thoughts, run them past us. We're probably going to either add a little bit of music in some places or uh, change it up a little bit. What do you think? Accordion? Polka? Where, where should we go? What should we do with this? Irish? Klezmer. 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 All right. I like it. Yeah. Uh, okay, Ben, I think that just about does it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.